1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies and New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. It's a special double feature today, so welcome. I just spoke with Tina Gamaltoft about her really haunting new book, Haunting Images, a cultural account of selective reproduction in Vietnam. This came out with the University of California Press in 2014. Now, this book is an ethnography of contemporary Hanoi, Vietnam, that takes us into different sorts of reproductive decision-making practices that all constellate around the tool or the object of the ultrasound image. And she takes us into the various kinds of selfhood and forms of belonging that emerge from this context. It's a beautiful book. It's a a really affecting book, as you'll hear um, me comment upon in the course of the interview to come. Now, from the prologue, it's also a book that takes us into a series of homes, of individual contexts, where these different phenomena are taking place. So, the prologue takes us into the home of one woman and her family— In order to introduce some of the motivating questions of this study, and I think the prologue says this uh, way better than I could, so I'll just give you some of these questions as a way to open this up. What constitutes a human being, a person, a livable life? What does it mean to see beyond the flesh using technology? When can a mother-to-be justify to herself, to others, the denial of a life to the child she's expecting? How can parents support a disabled child in his or her efforts to attain personhood and social recognition? And finally, how has the herbicide dioxin, known as Agent Orange, sprayed by the U.S. military over Vietnam during the Second Indochina War, affected human health in general and human reproduction in particular? So you can see that this is a study that approaches some really powerful, really important, and really fascinating questions um, in the course of telling the story that it does. It's a really fascinating book. It was a pleasure to talk with Tina about it, and I hope you have a chance to take a look at the book, to read it, and also I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. Thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Tina Gameltoft about her new book, Haunting Images A Cultural Account of Selective Reproduction in Vietnam. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies and New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Tina, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to talking about the book.
0: Thank you, and it's a pleasure.
1: So, could you start us off by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, what brought you to uh, work on ethnographical um, understandings of Vietnam? Um, As regards Vietnam, actually a complete
0: coincidence. Uh, My husband, 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, he was sent to Vietnam for a job with the UN, and at that time I had decided to, I wanted to work in Denmark and do, you know, the anthropology of Scandinavia. but then I went to see him there, and the first time I visited, I knew that this was where I was going to work, uh, and that turned out to be the case. So I'm still working there. My husband now is working more in Africa, but um, I keep going back to Vietnam. So this, this is, this sort of the yeah the coincidence behind behind my work there.
1: So the book that we're here to talk about today focuses on processes of reproductive decision-making in Hanoi and pays special attention to the ways that women, their communities, their families understood and made decisions based on ultrasound technologies. And there's a lot more going on and we'll talk about it over the course of our conversation. So how did you come to work on this particular topic? Can you situate this within your trajectory for us?
0: Yeah. Uh, the first Project I did in Vietnam now more than twenty years ago was for my PhD, and I worked. um, I did the study on women's use of contraception, and more specifically, the IUD, the intrauterine device, which was at at that time the only method of family planning available in Vietnam. At the same time as the government um, was um, trying to persuade women to have only one or two children, Um, so I worked. that time with reproductive health, and and later I have continued working with sexual reproductive health issues, uh, I've done some research on abortion, and so when the time came to plan this study, I knew that I wanted to continue working with women's issues and with uh, reproductive health issues, and at that time, this is now more than 10 years ago, practically all research selective reproduction on, on, on the use of prenatal screening had been conducted in the Western world, in Europe, in the US, in Australia, and... I don't think that I, I couldn't find anything from the developing world at that time. So I thought that, given that now I was moving to Vietnam to live there for two or three years, it was really a good chance to do work uh, on, 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 on this topic, which had, which was completely uninvestigated. So yeah, so that was the background.
1: And this is actually really interesting to hear because one of the themes that, at least in my experience of reading the book, runs throughout the book is the really um, distinct way that the issues that you're treating in the book emerge in the particular context of Hanoi versus what we would have expected to see in North America. Mm-hmm. And so that's yeah. um, a running theme throughout the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. So the book develops two main propositions, and I'll kind of lay these out um, as a way of then bringing us into um, the substance of the first body chapter. These two main propositions, as you lay them out early in the introduction, are first, that life and death decisions put people in situations where they're forced to consider not just what to do, but who they are. So there's a self-making, there's a self-animation that's happening here. And in addition to that, um, the book is arguing, or sort of one of the propositions that the book is laying out early on, is that people in Hanoi are, as you call it, forging moral selves. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. By enacting social belonging when they're confronting ethically demanding circumstances. Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is the background to keep in mind as we then proceed to explore um, the particularities of the study. Now, one of the things um, that emerges very early on in the book, before we even get to the particular um, locality that you're exploring in the course of your ethnography, is the imp- of being very clear about how we're thinking about the localized um, emergence of concepts like individuality choice Mm -hmm. um, as they emerge from different um, circumstances so one of the things that the book is doing early on is challenging the language of individual choice and in accounts of reproductive experience. We make a point here that there's an overemphasis on individual choice and how we understand reproductive technologies and that this can lead us to ignore or to completely misunderstand important elements of the human reproductive experience in different locations. Instead, the book brings us to uh, the importance of a language of collectivity, belonging, and responsibility. Mm-hmm. Now, you cite early on in the book an inspiration in the work of Emmanuel Levinas. Mm-hmm. Um. So, can you maybe start us off by talking a little bit about that—the um, the inspiration in the work of Emmanuel Levinas and how that? Um, what do we need to know about that, rather, in order to understand the importance of this notion of collectivity and belonging? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh,
0: let me say first that, that I mean, you, you, it's completely correct what you say that, that in the literature on the Western world, and this was what I was struck by, because at the time when I arrived in Vietnam, everything I had read about prenatal screening was, as I said before, um, originated in, in Europe or the U.S. basically. So throughout this literature, there was a lot of emphasis on choice. Which, in a way, makes sense, right? Because what these new technologies do is that they allow people to make choices. First, there's a choice about, do you want to use um, screening testing technologies in your pregnancy? Or do you not want to use these technologies? And then if women then proceed and they say, yes, we use the technologies, and then you move on to an even harder choice, which is in case the technologies then find something wrong with the child, that the woman is expecting what then do. does she do to proceed with the pregnancy or just it terminate it. And that is, you know, if you look at it, that's obviously very hard choices and, and it is decisions that have to be made. And this is also how these situations are framed by people in Hanoi. They also frame them as, as decisions and as choices. But I just, I hadn't worked that for very long until I realized that beneath that talk about decision-making and, and making choices, there was something else, which was this, uh, what I describe as, as, uh, in terms of an anthropology of belonging, as as this very strong sense of collectivity and belonging and responsibility to other people. And then I came across this work by Immanuel Levinas, as you say, and I think the main contribution from his philosophy for me. For, and for my thinking has been his the way he approaches subjectivity, the way he, he sees human subjectivity, which is completely different from the way it's most often conceptualized in the in, in, in social sciences at the moment. Which probably has to do with the way that many people tend to see subjectivity right now is very much influenced by the work of Michel Foucault. Um, and Levinas's approach to subjectivity is is completely different from that. So whereas Foucault places emphasis on self-making, he he sees subjectivity as a question of ethical self-practices, self-formation. Uh, Levinas says before we can even make choices, before we can make decisions, we are always already connected to others. So we are already involved in relations of obligation, responsibility to other people. Uh, so he's so Levinas basically says before, yes, we can look at decisions and choices, but before we can even think of making choices, making decisions, there's a very basic connectivity, basic connections to other people, and that's what we have to look at as well. And this resonated with the ethnographic observations that I did in Vietnam. So this is why I've, I've been thinking through Levinas throughout the book, basically, yeah.
1: This is also really important um, as a corrective because I think there's so much attention in so many different areas of uh, the humanities uh, and the social sciences right now, history, anthropology, sociology, on agency and on local uh, agency locally. And we tend to take for granted, I think, often without realizing we're doing so, that agency means individual agency. And this is really challenging that in in a very richly... um, sort of explored ethnographic account in a way that's, I think, really useful for listeners and readers, even if they don't imagine themselves as fundamentally interested in the topic that's being explained here. The mm-hmm. deep um, point about agency not necessarily being individual, I think, is right. really important. Yeah. Okay. So, As we move from an introduction which lays out um, a lot of the conceptual apparatus that are going to be used in the book, and we'll talk about those as they come up later on in the chapters, the first chapter takes us into the research setting um, that you explored for the purpose of this research. So can you spend a little bit of time talking about that, the ethnographic context that you were working in in Hanoi, and specifically your work with Hanoi's obstetrics and gynecology hospital?
0: Yeah, um, yeah. Thank you. I I have a long history of working with this hospital. Now, to start with the hospital, I worked there in ninety seven, ninety eight, uh, doing research on induced abortion among young unmarried women. Uh, so I had connections with this hospital already. Um, and then when I arrived in Hanoi for this project, I reconnected through colleagues with the hospital, and, and they were very keen to have us working there. Actually, I should say also, I did this research field. Uh, research together with ten Vietnamese colleagues. So they were working with me at, at the hospital, uh, and yeah. So, the hospital, uh, the directors there and the and the doctors they were very very welcoming because they saw this um, new technology as deeply fascinating and it's very very important for Vietnam. So they appreciated that we were paying attention to 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 the technology and to how it was being used. Um, Apart from that, Hanoi, in in, in general, as I write in the book, uh, at this time there was a lot of attention paid to Agent Orange, uh, and the consequences of Agent Orange for the reproductive health of Vietnamese people, so that was uh, sort of everywhere present in the city in, in people's conversations and in newspaper articles and in many other places, uh, yeah. And what, what else could I say about Hanoi? Mm-hmm. Well, well,
1: actually, well, um, let's maybe um, any specific aspect of the hospital and of Hanoi more generally will come up in the course of the conversation, too. And ultimately, <laughs> I'm going to ask you about Agent Orange. Uh, <laughs> I want to um, just mark before I move a little um, forward into the book, though, something that you just mentioned Um, You emphasized just now, and you also emphasize in the book, the fact that you worked on a research team. This is really important in terms of the self-reflexivity of the book. Um, It's very just wonderfully and beautifully self-reflexive. And that engagement of the we as um, the research agents in this process, I think, not only organically kind of strengthens and emphasizes the importance of collectivity, in the book but also brings the reader into that we. it's a very visceral experience to read this book it's very affecting on many levels for the reader and there is a sense that we're collectively encountering this together and so i just wanted to mark that because that was a really important part of um, the reading experience for me i really appreciated that self-reflexivity
0: thank you that's nice to hear <laughs> because it was a really important part of the fieldwork was this not being just the the single lonely anthropologist in the field, but being a member of a team and having these ongoing conversations. We were, you know, we were talking throughout the fieldwork, of course, about what was happening, how could we interpret what people said, um, how could we frame our questions. Uh, so, that, so it was really a very much in a very deep sense a collective fieldwork that we did. So the
1: book focuses on, it as the um, title and the cover of the book can indicate, with the focus on images, the book focuses on the use of and the confrontation with ultrasound imaging technology. So can you talk about the importance of coming to this in your study, and specifically how has ultrasound turned into such a widely used tool and how yeah,
0: thank you. This was, to me, was really actually one a very surprising thing uh, because Vietnam at this time was still a low-income country. Now it's defined as a middle-income country, but this time it was defined as a low-income country. Uh, and even though Hanoi is obviously wealthier than many rural areas are, uh, I still had not expected to see the technology being used to such a high degree as as turned out to be the case Um because at this time, ultrasound had only just started to be used uh, generally in pregnancy, maybe a couple of years earlier. So in the late 90s, when I did another research project, uh, there were no ultrasound. It was just not a part of, of, of a pregnancy experience. And now it was already, now. this was 2003. Uh, so the technology had been just introduced just a couple of years earlier, and the 3D technology uh, was very, very new. And... Um, so I had simply not expected that this technology would already have become this kind of habituated part of pregnancy care that it, that I realized that it was. So it was like from most of the women I met, it would be unthinkable to go through a pregnancy without having at least one ultrasound scanning. And many had around one, one scan per month, and some had even more. I met women who had 30 scans in a pregnancy, where it was like, you know, on your way home from work, you would just pass by and... Uh, um, provider a clinic and have the scan done and, and then go home and cook your your dinner. Uh, so this to me was a surprise. and And did
1: you ask how did it happen or why? Uh, you come to so? Well, why is this? Yeah, why is this such a widespread um, technology used in handling? Mm-hmm. Your, uh, what? You yeah, I think it's it's several factors
0: working together. One factor is uh, the Uh, privatization of the healthcare system, which means that we have uh, lots of private providers in Hanoi now offering pregnancy care, and women often prefer the private providers because the services are are, are quick and in in many many ways more convenient. Uh, And these, um, and, and ultrasounds basically are a source of income. For these providers, for, for the private providers, but also for the public hospitals. So providers are pushing the use of this technology simply, basically, because it's it's it's, it's income, it's revenue for them. So that's one factor. But another factor was this: uh, I found a very deep anxiety among women concerning the outcomes of the pregnancies. So many women were really, really anxious that something might be wrong with the child they were expecting. And so they they feel that if I have an ultrasound, I can take that and make sure that the fetus is okay. And then they feel reassured, but then soon, you know, one week, two weeks after they would start thinking and say, well, this fetus is developing constantly, so even if it was okay two weeks ago, I cannot be sure that it's still okay now, so I have to go for another ultrasound. So this is why they would have so many, or many women would have so many ultrasounds with this constant monitoring of the pregnancy to make sure that the fetus was okay and developing normally.
1: And part of the larger context, as you um, explore, actually, in the third chapter of the book in which this is happening, is a context of an ecology of images, if you can call it, mm. that their communities and their families are encountering in the course of everyday life. And part of that ecology of images involves images of bodies that are dealing with the consequences of agent orange exposure. Mm this is a good time to talk about that. What's going on in terms of the larger context of understanding this ultrasound imaging process within um, a larger social and cultural encounter with Agent Orange exposure in Hanoi? Yeah, Agent Orange is a big big
0: factor as well. and or Not in the in itself, but the way it's represented in the mass media, the way it's talked about among people themselves. Um, and uh, at this time, when, when we did this field work in Hanoi, uh, there was a lot of attention paid to Agent Orange or to the, the, the consequences of Agent Orange for the health of Vietnamese people. And there was a court case running in New York, which uh, which um, uh, which they lost. The people who, who ran the court case, court case, they lost. But, but uh, the consequence of the court case was this very strong mass media attention in Hanoi to Agent Orange. Um, and as a part of that uh, there were images everywhere in newspapers in television whenever you turn on the television you would see these documentaries uh, depicting the, the, the lives of families having you know one or several what was called Agent Orange children so children who were born uh, with disabilities that people assumed stemmed from Agent Orange their fathers or grandfathers Exposure to 80 bombs during the war, um, and these images were really, really frightening because this was so often the children were very severely disabled, disfigured, um, and for pregnant women to to meet these images during a pregnancy, to, to, to be confronted with these images during a pregnancy was very, very unsettling. That's what, what women told me. So, so many women during their pregnancy, they would simply avoid watching television just to be sure not to run into these pictures. Um, so if we talk about, as you say, an ecology of images, then the aged orange images of severely disabled, malformed children were a very big part of that ecology and, and, and in emotional terms, very, very unsettling for many people. Yeah.
1: Thank you. Now, as this whole set of phenomena is happening, women making, or women who are part of the process of making reproductive decisions, are simultaneously part of several different kinds of communities that generate different kinds of belonging. Mm. As we move through the chapters, um, one of those kinds of communities, or kinds of communal belonging, is that of the nation. And chapter two. Takes us into sort of current population policies in Vietnam that are oriented toward a particular way of thinking about quality control and population quality that link the state of the national body to that of the individual reproductive body. Can you talk a little bit about that and the importance of that here um, to kind of ground us as we move forward? Yeah, uh,
0: thank you. This was another pro- big. Factor in the picture was the, the politics of these issues at exactly this time when we did the fieldwork, um, because in the nineties when I did my first uh, research in Vietnam, um, the population policy was very much uh, oriented towards uh, the quantity of the population. So basically, the idea was population control. The idea was to persuade women and couples not to have too many children. Um, so this, but this. Uh, attention to quantity was then supplemented in the, around the turn of the millennium, uh, supplemented with a new focus on quality. So policymakers would start talking about population quality as something that was really important for Vietnam. So they would say, you know, if this country... Want to modernize, if this country wants to move out of its low-income status, then we would need to pay more attention to population quality because the quality of Vietnam's population is too low. So they would say people are too small and there are too many children, (coughs) children born disabled. Uh, and um, the population is not fit enough in in physical terms. So there was was a lot of attention at this time to to strengthening what was called the quality of the population. And in European years, of course, that does not sound good because for us it brings to mind um, Eugenic policies that we know from Europe. Um, But for people in Vietnam, uh, they wouldn't think of eugenics, they would think of another history, which was their own history of war. And and uh, again, the suffering that has been the consequence of the war for Vietnamese people. So this would be sort of for them a way to undo the damage that has been done by war, whereas to then focus on how can we strengthen our population, including how can we ensure that all children are born healthy and normal. So this population quality terms which sounds very problematic in my years and in many other European years, um, would in Vietnamese years sound completely different and, and and very much as a public health concern that just make, makes basic sense.
1: Great. And one of the, I think, important corollary points that comes up in your discussion of population and biopolitics in this chapter, I just want to mark this for listeners before we move on, in that. Whereas um, often, you know, those of us who think about histories and populations, when you think about population, you think about biopower, you think about Foucault, you're making an important point here. Or I I think at least it's really important um, that biopower always takes place in very locally specific ways. It's important to localize that. And I think that's That's an important intervention. Mm Another kind of community that women are part of that generates another kind of belonging um, at the same time as this belonging in terms of the national body is local moral communities. And you talk about the importance of this in terms of... Sort of uh, helping the subjective formation of the woman as she's mm. dealing with these decisions. So, when a woman's pregnant, as you put it in chapter three, what's at stake is not only the coming into being of her child, but also the coming into being of herself as a mm. member of her local moral community. So, can you talk about that? That seems like a really crucial point. To
0: Yeah, thank you. This was actually a very central thing and it was one, it took me a little while to realize the difference between what I saw in Hanoi and what I knew from St. Edmago or other places that I know well. Because for women in Hanoi, it was so important, as I said before, really important. Of course, the pregnancies go well, and that the children are born healthy. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, that's kind of familiar to me. I've, you know, that's not so strange from what I know from my own country or other countries. Uh, so it took a while before I realized that for the women that I met in Hanoi, this was an. There was an even more profound concern at issue that this was also a very, very existential sense, existential question, in the sense that. If they ended up having a child that was that had some kind of problem, that was not normal, quote unquote, then that would be a problem um, in terms of their getting integrated as full members of their husband's families. Um, so when women get married in Vietnam, they leave their own families that they were born into, move into their husband's family. So it's a patrilineal, patrilocal kinship structure. Uh, and this means that for these women that I read, if they had the child that they hoped to have, the healthy, normal child, they would be accepted now as full members of their husband's family. So they would belong fully to this new family. But if they did not, if they failed in... in uh, childbearing, then they would not be accepted as full members, and then they would be full members of nothing. They would be sort of living in a limbo, a social limbo, because they would not belong to their natal family anymore, and they would not belong fully to their husband's family. So it was basically for them a question of coming into being themselves, of becoming full human being, full persons themselves. And so it's not just a question of producing a, a child that was considered a full human being but it was also a question of themselves being considered as full human beings. So in that sense and then you know, again the 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 overuse or the very excessive use of the ultrasounds in a way for me made sense in, in in a deeper sense than it did to begin with.
1: So as we move into the fourth chapter, we move from understanding the contexts nationally, the context in terms of local moral communities, and look the context of the world of the physicians who are in assisting these women and their families in making these decisions. Chapter 4 looks specifically at the ways that physicians and healthcare professionals more generally at the hospital that you looked at defined their own roles in the realm of selective reproduction. Now, you make a point here, and this is related to one of the first things we talked about, actually, that these physicians did not aim to set women free. Right. So, Mm -hmm own independent choices, but instead sought to care for their patients by taking responsibility for them. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about this notion of responsibility, um, which is really key here, and and what kinds of ways did you see physicians doing
0: this? Mm -hmm. Yes, this was, again, I was implicitly comparing to what I knew from Denmark, and what I knew from Denmark was that, uh, and what I knew from the literature, say, from the U.S. or or other places in, in in. in the Western world, um, was that um, there's a lot of emphasis on non-directed counseling when it comes to prenatal screening. So again, say if a problem is found in pregnancy, then the physicians are expected to give the woman uh, give the woman the information that she needs and then she's supposed to make her own independent decision together with her husband. Um, and what I saw physicians do in Hanoi was completely different from that. So they would uh, give some information, and, and then they would always tell the woman in very direct terms what they thought she should do. Right? So either they would say, "No, this uh, is not really a big problem, so you should continue with this pregnancy," or they would say, "Oh, this is never going to be a proper child. You better." Um, terminate the pregnancy immediately. So they would be very direct. And to begin with, I felt quite unsettled by that because, uh, yeah, I felt they would be too direct and, and how could the woman find out what she herself wanted to do if the doctors were guiding her so strongly. Um, but then over time again, I came to see it in a different light because I, of course, learned to see it the way that people in Hanoi see it. So what I realized was that For the doctors, they felt that the only way that they could take proper responsibility for the patients, and this was something that was very important for them, they said, you know, we have a really big task, we have a very big responsibility as doctors, and the only way we can can enact that responsibility properly, is by guiding these women in very direct terms, because it's such a painful, such a difficult situation for them to be in, so we have to tell them, you know, what is the best thing to do, Uh, and when I talk to a women and to the women's relatives, they said the same thing, they say basically this is such a painful situation. We don't know what to do. We don't have you know enough um, sort of insight into the medical aspects of this. So we would we we need this direct guidance. Um, so over time, I started to think. Well, uh, I can see the point. You know, in ethical terms, I can see the point in the way. They are practicing counselling, and you could turn it around, and you could say, "Is this non-directive counselling that is that physicians try to, to 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 do in Denmark, for instance, is that the the the, the best thing to do for patients ethically?" Uh, and I'm not so sure about now what is right and wrong in this, as I was to begin with.
1: One of the things that um, is really fascinating just along the lines of what you were just saying that comes up in this chapter is that physicians would occasionally, and, and I'm not sure how occasional um, this was, but would occasionally involve you and your research team in the trying to uh, urge women to make certain kinds of decisions. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's, that's one of the really striking moments for me as a reader. is trying to imagine what that would have been like uh, yeah. as a doctor researcher. Yeah, that was actually hard. I, I mean, I found that really hard
0: because, again, the doctors then knew often, they knew exactly what they thought was right. Uh, and then, as you say, they would sometimes try to involve us in that and say, say, if a woman was hesitating, they would say to us, you know, you know her, can you go and talk to her and explain to her that she does need to terminate this pregnancy? That's the only, you know, appropriate response to this, whatever scanning results she had got. Um, and I've so for me, again, I was probably too rooted in in, in this non-directive way of approaching these things. So I felt I couldn't, I couldn't do that. Uh, but what we did instead was that we had time to talk to the women and to their relatives. So we visited them at home, and we spent many many hours together with them, just talking, uh, you know, helping them to unravel their thoughts and to to think about consequences of doing one thing consequences of doing another thing so in that way I think we did engage with them in these decisions but without telling them what was right or wrong usually with a very few sometimes some of my the members on my team they would they would they were also uh, doctors and they would sometimes be more more direct in in suggesting to women what they thought was right or wrong and
1: uh, the next three chapters of the book, chapters five through seven, actually take us into some of these circumstances mm. where individual women and their families, who were informed through three D ultrasound scans of the children they expected uh, would be anomalous, were making decisions about mm. who and how this was happening. And there's some, even though I've been asking you questions um, that are about kind of larger contexts and generalities, I'll just mention for listeners that uh, there are quite a few. Many more than a few, actually, individual accounts here um, of specific circumstances and specific localities and specific families. So um, there's a lot of examples in the book, and um, those come up throughout the chapters, but chapters five through seven are particularly devoted to bringing us into some of these households. Chapter five looks very closely at the various ways of understanding causality. Mm. Outcome as they shaped how women in their communities, their families understood their reproductive encounter. These women and their relatives wanted to know why. What made pregnancy abnormal? What was uh, the cause of this? Why? So, in this chapter, you take us through different levels of causation that were um, that existed at the same time, that mutually informed one another, but that we might think about. As, or we might have before reading this chapter thought about as independent realms. And this is um, realms of the biological body, realms of the cosmological body or bodies, and then kind of social bodies and social processes that were involved in causation. Now you can talk about this, um, one of the ways at least that you talk about this in this chapter is that suggesting we understand the engagement between these biological bodies and cosmological bodies, or put another way, perhaps between science and superstition, as a process of moral imbrication. Talk about that for us. What is moral implication as you're using it here and how does this help us understand this relationship between science, superstition, biological and cosmological bodies?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I use this term moral implication to capture the ways that what was to me, again, as a researcher, immediately visible, uh, which would be the what we could call the scientific explanations, how they were always engaging with something more culturally, historically deep-seated, which is what I call the cosmological body, or we could call superstition. Uh, and that to me was very fascinating because, you know, if I had been doing a three-month fieldwork, I would have only captured the, the science, the, what people call the scientific Explanations um, because this was what people would readily easily talk about. Uh, so, when they were thinking about what could have made my pregnancy go wrong, the first thing they would talk about would always be sort of quote unquote scientific explanations like maybe I had a cold during the pregnancy and that could have been the cause or. Maybe my husband was exposed to toxic chemicals at at his workplace, that could be the cause. Or again, Agent Orange could come up as a cause in case um, family members had been exposed to Agent Orange during the war. Uh, So this was what people would would readily, easily, quickly, immediately talk about, would be the science side of this causation. Uh, so, and it was only when I got to know people better and met them on several locations and could start to piece together other things that they were also talking about, but in a less coherent way and in a, it was much more secure much much more subtle in in, in people 's ways of talking about this, but it was in in emotional terms, in moral terms, it was really, really strong. And this is what I call the cosmological body or or what Vietnamese people would call superstition. Uh, And I see this as something that dates centuries back because it resonates with uh, Confucian uh, cosmologies, Taoist, Buddhist ways of thinking. Um, So I see this as something that's culturally very, very uh, long standing in Vietnam and that somehow engages with or the the scientific explanations are suffused by these cosmological explanations and the reason why people wouldn't talk about uh, this superstition or cosmology, whatever we call it, as readily is that it has been seen as as backwards, as a pure way of thinking by the socialist authorities. Uh, So people would feel shy and hesitant and reluctant to talk about these things but nevertheless they were there as this sort of layer beneath what was easily articulated. So I found that really fascinating and again this was one of the things that took some time before I, I, I realized that there were much deeper layers to the stuff that people immediately said than what I would get at the, at the first kind of conversation with people.
1: Now, one mm-hmm. of the things that you um, just mentioned was the possible factor of environmental toxicity. And for me as a reader, this was one of the, I mean, many, but one of the standout moments where I was very deeply affected and very deeply disturbed. And I mean mm-hmm. in a positive generative sense. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. By what was happening in the, mm-hmm. there are very, very moving and affecting accounts of the kinds of struggles between, on the one hand, doing a kind of work that you need to do in order to support yourself and your family, at the same time that that work is going to expose you knowingly to all kinds of toxicity that are going to, at the same time, challenge or damage your family because they may affect um, your growing child. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems like a really, it's a moment in the story that actually got me really Um, Angry at the circumstances that were producing this. Yeah, Yeah. I was angry too.
0: I was very, very unsettled by this. This is, you know, Vietnam. Of course, has a socialist history, but then turned to a market economy um, in the late eighties, and by now, market forces are quite strong in the country, uh, and the protection of workers is not always as good as it could be, Um, and. There's growing, in, at least in my opinion, social inequalities, growing social differences between the people who are the privileged. Uh, groups classes and the people who are not Uh, and what i found really unsettling was to see how the people who are not the privileged ones which are say people who come from rural provinces and move into hanoi and have a very fragile position there and a very uncertain position in the labor market there how they have to basically just be happy to have a job and if the working conditions are not optimal and that could say, include exposure to toxic chemicals or chemicals that they at least assume to be toxic. They may have to just accept that because at least then they have a job and an income and they can support their family at home in the in the province, rural province that they come from, or it could be in in the countryside around Hanoi, where we were also doing fieldwork. So this, some of the women that we met in the hospital came from rural provinces, and so we went there to visit them. And again, a uh, the uh, people in in rural areas also have to, to struggle really hard now to make an income from from their land, uh, and again that sometimes includes exposure to uh, fertilizers, um, um, pesticides, other chemicals that people assume to be toxic. Uh, and again, as you say, to 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 uh, earn an income, to be able to feed your children, sometimes people just have to live with. Ex- Thing is dangerous. So sometimes the people we met, when they were looking for reasons, this was one of the reasons they would consider, but they would always want to not consider it. They would always say, No, you know, yes, we do work on, the, you know, we are exposed to toxic chemicals, but that's probably not the reason. And then they would continue doing whatever work they were doing, even though they feared that it had damaging consequences for their health and for possibly for, for coming children's health. So, yeah, I find that unsettling. It is sort of the underside, you could say, to the development that Vietnam is going through now. You have still very high economic growth rates, but there is an underside to that. And that was this was how people themselves framed it. Also, they said that this development that we see in our country now, it comes at a cost, and this is sort of one of the costs. And
1: some of these families are... are dealing with this in the case of, and just to just to say a little bit about why, I, you know, one of the reasons why I found this so affecting, they're dealing with four or five cases of pregnancies that where the, the baby is born is mm. still born or there's some sort of deformation. I mean, four or five in a row or six in a row, mm. you know, still, um, these are circumstances they live in. Is this, it's just, it's, it's, It confounds. See, I'm having trouble even articulating how Mm, this should just tell you how deeply affecting this was. I just—it's hard to understand. And I think um, one of the things that the book does really beautifully and really powerfully is to bring us into individual, local cases where this is happening and humanizing this, um, so that we're able to not, you know, experience this in the way that a family would have, but understand through taking us into a particular household Mm -hmm. um, what happens in a way that's much, much more affecting and much, much more powerful than just talking about this in a larger, you know, kind of contextual way. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: So thank you for that. And also that's something I think about the book, one of many things that's really going to stay with me uh, for a Mm very long time. So as we move into the book and move into the next chapter, chapter six looks very closely at how women and their families understood and encountered childhood disabilities. This is a really important part of the book. And the ways that those understandings and also those images shaped their reproductive decision making. So the women in this chapter are struggling with not understanding in what way the fetus on an ultrasound is abnormal, right? So not really about that, and what the long-term outcomes of keeping the fetus would be. As a way of coping with this uncertainty as you're showing us here in this chapter, biomedical issues are important, but they're not necessarily the most important. Mm -hmm. Understanding relationships of social belonging is also crucial. Now, what... One one of the ways that this plays out here is in terms of family understandings of and experience with children with disabilities. So can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about this part of the story and what, way, um, what what's significant about this? For us to understand and to understand the larger thing you're making about disability in this chapter?
0: Um, yeah, I could start from the hospital again, actually, because. When i was sitting in the hospital and, and overhearing these consultations between women and healthcare providers, I was sometimes struck by, you know, the, the minimal information, in my view, that the women would get. So the doctors would give them very little factual information about what was the problem with this fetus. They would say basically just, this is abnormal, uh, what do you want to do? And then women would say very promptly, I'll have an abortion. In many cases, this was Crudely put, this was what was this counseling was like. right? So the doctor says, this is abnormal. And the woman says, okay, I'll go for an abortion. And whereas, you know, for me, I was thinking if if I had been that pregnant woman, I would have said, okay, what do you mean by abnormal? Uh, what would what would this child look like if I kept the pregnancy? Um, I would have asked all those kinds of questions, but they did not. So I thought, you know, how can they get so quickly from a very rudimentary Diagnosis, quote unquote, because with highly a high diagnosis, how could they get so quickly from that to the decision to opt for a pregnancy termination? In a situation where I knew, again, from talking to pregnant women, that women often enacted this, you know, attachment and expressed very strong feelings of love and commitment and uh, very strong feelings for this mm-hmm. fetus, and uh, and yet still, at the same time, they would go so promptly for an abortion. Uh, That pushed me. And this was then when I got to work with women out in their communities, families, uh, and then met also with uh, parents who had disabled children themselves. Uh, And this was when I got to understand how that having a child that's severely disabled is so deeply disrupting for a family that the threat of that, and so when the the doctor says something is wrong with this fetus, the threat of, of... of perhaps having a child that's severely disabled, that threat was so threatening, so to say, to the women that there was no that they didn't need any detailed information about what exactly was wrong because to know that this is probably maybe a severely disabled child was enough they didn't know to know they didn't need to know more they just needed to know that because they knew. How difficult it is for a family to have a child that's severely disabled. They knew that because they all women have family members or neighbors or community members on close hold that live uh, with a child with a disability. So they know what it means, they know what are the implications for a family. Uh, and that knowledge, so to say, that practical knowledge of what does it mean to have a child that's severely disabled, that was more important than whenever. Biomedical detail they could have gotten about this particular fetus. So the general knowledge about living with disability was so important that the, the specific knowledge about their own potential child was not so important. So, so I found that quite striking. Um, and the challenges are enormous. I mean, having a, a child with disability in a low-income country like this where there's no state support, no community support, nothing. Um, And the family is basically left to itself to care for this child. That is very, very demanding. Um, And often (coughs) people... Um, will struggle, of course, to care for the children they have. So if a couple has a severely disabled child, it will mean in many cases that either father or mother will have to stay at home to care for the child. And this means that the family is losing 50% of the income. And we just talked about now how, of course, important income is and how difficult it can be to, to generate enough income. So losing 50% of the income in a family, at the same time as there may be extra costs in terms of medical treatment, that's that's very, very demanding. And it can pull family below uh, poverty level, basically. So, yeah. So the consequences are enormous. The, the practical social uh, consequences are enormous. And women knew that. And that it was that knowledge that made them say, promptly, I have an abortion.
1: And this is importantly different from the way listeners or readers might have encountered um, what you're saying out of the context of the book because this is not, the, you're making the point in this chapter that it's not just about, oh, this is hard, right? It's mm-hmm. about what it means to be a full person in this right. context, what it means right. to be a self. And what it yeah. means to be a self, a full person, means actively contributing a community, so you. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, you're making a point yeah. here that an an abnormal child, right? And I, and I use this you know term as as it's used in the, the chapter, and as it sort of emerges out of this context, places the family and the child and uh, the mother and the father into what you call permanent moral marginality. Mm-hmm it's it's something much more and much more specific than just the fact of it being difficult so can you tell yeah. a little bit about
0: that yeah basically what people told me was that uh the problem, if a child is born disabled, the problem is that there's a big risk that this child will never become what they see as, as a poor person. And then was, I was inquiring, of course, into, well, what is a poor person? Uh, uh, and they would say, well, or basically, that would be the essence of what they say. They would say, to be a full person, you need to be able to return to people whatever they give you. So, so you have to be able to engage in relations of reciprocity. So they would say, you know, as a human being, you receive things from others, and especially as a little baby. And as you grow up, as a child, you receive things from others, help, assistance. It's other people who are helping you to, to grow up, to become a human being. Uh, so you are always placed in relations of debt to parents, especially to teachers, to all those who made your own life possible. And then to become fully a full full person and fully human, uh, you need you have to be able to pay back somehow. You have to be able to um, return all that you have received from others. So you have to return the care that your parents have given you. By the time when they grow old, it's you as a child caring for them, making sure that they live and continue to live a good life in their uh, old age, and that they get when they die, that they get safely into the other world after death. Uh, and you have all these obligations as a child to the parents who have made your life possible. And if, you, if you're if you unable to return that, if you're unable to do for your parents um, what you need to do to live up as to your obligations as a child, then you will never become that full person. Then you are caught in a in, in sort of non not full person status, of course not a non-person, but also not a full person either. Uh, so for the child, this means a severely disabled child say uh, who's lying immobile on the bed uh, throughout his life, he will of course not be able to return what his parents did for him. So he will be caught in this limbo again as a not full person. So this was one side, but then for the, I realized that for the parents who have disabled children, it's a double challenge actually because one thing is... The challenge of they are living with a child that uh, has to face this fate of probably never becoming a full person, but their own personhood is also at issue because as a parent, it's your responsibility to make sure that your child becomes a full person. So if the child does not, then the parent's personhood is also compromised. So their ability to become full people to, to put persons for human beings to do what human beings should do to live up to their obligations as human beings, that's jeopardized as well. So, so it's not just that they have to see their child suffer and they have to be daily confronted with their own inability to do for their child what they should do for their child. It's also that they as persons um, uh, are unfulfilled, so to say. So it's a really in existential term it's it's a terms it's a very very painful double challenge of the child not becoming a full person but parents also not becoming full persons and and it and it shows us also again how these intimate connections between people that you cannot look at parents separately from the child you can look at the child separately from the parents so it's like sort of parents bodies and child's bodies becoming one so to say
1: thank you um, so as, the, as we move into the last chapters of the book here, in the context of talking about these issues, uh, the chapters also make a very clear and very explicit point that the decisions emerging from these issues are, very importantly, much less individualized and less medicalized than those described in studies that are located in, like, North America, and mm. Europe. Not only are these um, decisions less individualized and less medicalized, but importantly, pregnancy decision making was a joint endeavor. Mm. Um, this is a really important point in the book, um, and so I think it's worth just spending a, a minute or two on um, just underlining this. Do you want to talk a little bit about this? What is important about, um, what, what is important that we understand about this point that decision making is a joint process and a joint endeavor?
0: Yeah, this is back to this issue of collectivity um, because I found that really, really striking the way that the women said on the one hand, they get this information, something is wrong with the child you're expecting and then in, on the one hand, they feel, well, this is a decision I have to make. So the ultimate decision will be made by the woman carrying the pregnancy. But they would always, all of them say that there's no way that I could make this decision on my own. So they would feel confronted with a very difficult decision, but then they would take that decision and sort of place it back into social collectivities, which would be mainly the family, sometimes the extended family, the king group, and also the the physicians at the hospital. So they would sort of socialize the decision they had to make and say, this this has to be collective. Uh, And in some cases, what I witnessed in families was, again, I was... I found it disturbing to begin with because sometimes I would sense that the family's relatives made the decision on behalf of the woman uh, or again like the doctors, they would give very strong directions and say, well, you know, we have to do this or we have to do that. But then when I talked to women, I realized that they they appreciated that. They said, this is so painful. How could I, how could I live with making that decision all on my own? For me, it's helpful that my relatives are making the decision with me or for me. Um, so, yeah, so I found that quite striking, and that's why I've, I've been preoccupied with this question about, about collectivity and belonging throughout the book, because was we, what women did, was that they enacted belonging? They said, this is this is a personal decision, but it's a decision that I can only make together with those that I belong together with, so to say.
1: Now, this collectivity and belonging is also something that um, impacts decisions about care after death. So you invoked um, the issue of care after death a little bit before. Uh, The seventh chapter actually looks at contexts where families have to decide what kinds of ritual enactments um, to, or, or what kinds of rituals to enact after the death of of the fetus and after these decisions have been made. And this is another important part of the story. Is is the fetus named? Is it buried? Where is it buried? And what other kinds of ritual modes of engaging the fetus? Mm -hmm. Can you talk just a little bit about that as we come to um, Mm -hmm. the
0: conclusion? Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, this was... Again, when I say that the women faced the decision they had to make within social collectivities, I realized after a while that a, a member of those collectivities was actually the fetus. That the fetus was not just a thing, but it was a being that the women considered basically as a social actor. Uh, so when they came to the decisions that they had to come to, they also... Uh, came to those decisions through engagements with the fetus. But the fetus, of course, was a special kind of social actor because it was so, it was this liminal figure. On the one hand, the women and their relatives, they defined it as, as a family member, uh, as a human being, a family member. But on the other hand, it was not a full human being yet because it was still inside the womb, so it, was, it had not been born. So, in terms of ritual, uh, this was something that was really, really ha- hard for women and the feminists and I found that often defining how to how to treat the fetal body after the abortion was actually more difficult than making the decision to have the abortion or not. Um, uh, so, and that to me was surprising that it was such a big issue and it could create a lot of controversy within families because the question was basically, uh, should we consider this fetus as a, not a family member, as something we could leave at the hospital and other people will take care of it, we don't have to think about it anymore, or should we say this is a family member so we will take it home and we'll bury it at home and uh, conduct you know rituals as we do for other deceased family members so it was really a definitional conundrum for for the families but they had to define what kind of feeling is this fetus really and what was really hard for them was this and this is where the term haunting in the book's title haunting images refers also to people's fears that the fetus would keep haunting them and that was an enormous fear in all all cases, all women I met, Uh, they feared that this fetus would continue following them, that it would return. So in the next subsequent pregnancy, the same fetus might come back to them and again be defective and again confront them with this painful decision that they had just had had to go through now. Uh, So they had, in terms of ritual, they had to find a balance between, on the one hand, recognizing the fetus, but on the other hand, not showing their love, for it to clearly, because if they showed the fetus that they loved it, how much they loved it, then it would feel connected to them, and it would stay with them, it would keep on keep coming back. So this was in, in, in ritual terms, but also in existential terms, social terms, this was a really yeah. a big challenge for many families, of finding a way of striking this balance between showing the fetus the recognition, showing it, it is a human being, it's not just garbage that we throw out at the hospital, so it's a human being, but it's not a human being that we want to stay with us, uh, and, and this was where they turned to rituals, so they tried to conduct rituals in another way than you would normally do when a family member dies, and where they would explicitly tell the fetus and say, now we're, we're done, now you you." Please don't come back to us anymore. And then they hope that it would stay away from them. So, and I interpreted this as sort of conscience questions that these fears of being haunted also reflected these conscience questions that all of the women struggled with, where they felt, on the one hand, they felt we did the only thing we could do in terminating the pregnancy, but on the other hand, they also felt we killed our own child. Uh, So, these sort of unresolved conscience questions. Emerged in all these concerns about fears about the, the fetus perhaps returning to home his parents. That's
1: right. And um, just to kind of uh, mark for our listeners before we move on to the conclusion and to our to our conclusion, mm-hmm. fetus is a social actor, but not the same kind of social actor um, as an infant, right? And one of the yeah. fascinating yeah. things here um, that you bring up in this chapter that's actually something we could have talked about for another half hour. <laughs> threads through the entire book is the importance of meeting an infant face to face and the importance of the face as a as a kind of mediator of and a marker of selfhood um so that's we could talk about faces and the importance of the face another uh, another conversation i I just wanted to um mark that for listeners who might be particularly interested in that issue um that comes up Throughout the book, and it's one of the things mm-hmm. that um, really fascinated me is the, the story about face and the face here. Yeah. And, um, recognition and selfhood that becomes really important. Yeah. And this note, just one thing, because this was actually, you know, you started out
0: asking about Livinas, and this was actually what brought me to Livinas in the first place, was with, with this uh, emphasis that I noticed that people in Vietnam placed place on the face. And Livinas does the same in his philosophy, right? He places a lot of Moral emphasis on on the face and the face-to-face meeting. It's fascinating. I mean,
1: that's Mm -hmm. a whole. I would. That's a whole other book. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, so in the conclusion, I'll just what I'll do is just um, mention what's happening here, and then we'll open up um, in it, to our conclusion. So the conclusion summarizes the story and also takes us forward toward a broader anthropology of belonging, and it considers belonging at the same time as a state discourse, as a social practice, and also as a, a sense of experiences of loss. And it talks about mm. the importance of experiences of loss um, to to belonging. Mm. to this anthropology of belonging. Mm. So Tina, as we come to the um, conclusion of our conversation, is there anything specifically um, in the conclusion or anything more generally um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention uh, that you feel is particularly important that you'd like to mention for listeners? Not really. I think, I mean, I liked your reading of the book and I think uh,
0: we talked about all the major issues.
1: Yeah. No, we did. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I think um, it's hopefully it's clear to listeners, and, and I just want to emphasize, in case it's not completely clear, that it wasn't. Um, it's not just a, a beautiful book and a very arresting book, but it's also a very sort of intimately affecting book. This is a book that stays with you, uh, or it, it certainly will stay with me for a very long time. Thank you for that, uh, because it's a. It's not all the time that we get to read books that are so transformative. Thank you. So now that the book is out, and congratulations on uh, what is just an amazing work here, what's next for you? Are there any projects that are currently uh, motivating you and inspiring you? Mm -hmm.
0: I'm working on a new project now, actually, which is funded by Danita, the Danish Development Agency, uh, where we work again as a team. We have a team in Vietnam, and we have a team in Tanzania. And we're looking at uh, intimate partner violence and the consequences of intimate partner violence for women's reproductive health. So, we're working again with pregnant women and now following women throughout the pregnancies to see, to compare women who are exposed to violence to women who are not, and then looking at women's mental health during pregnancy and after the delivery, and looking at pregnancy outcomes to see whether children are are born. Return or a lower birth weight in case the women are exposed to to partner violence. So we're trying in this study to combine epidemiology with ethnography. So it's it's interdisciplinary and it's and it's um, and it's across two countries, Vietnam and, and Tanzania. So I'm quite excited about this project both in terms of the the, the collaboration across countries and also in terms of the collaboration across uh, scientific di- disciplines.
1: Well, that sounds amazing as well. So best of luck with that work. Um, And I'll look forward to talking with you about that as well. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much, Thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies and new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us. And we'll see you next time.